Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Chase Catalano at Virginia Tech University as our guest. Chase, thank you so much for joining the podcast. And um, I'm just looking forward to learning more, a little bit more about your work today. Glad you could be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Before we get into work and career, which is kind of the focus of our conversation today, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are outside of work? So when you're not Professor Chase, what are some things that you enjoy doing? Uh, what sorts of things are you reading, listening to, watching, all that kind of stuff? So I'm not, I'm not really one for having an expansive life. So I should just admit that at the onset. Uh, but I would say, you know, I love my dogs, my two rescue dogs. They are, they are my everything. Um, my um, partner, obviously, um, who also works in student affairs. So I, I, I live, I live and, and work with, with my job. Um, my family lives uh, relatively close in North Carolina. And so I like to see them and spend time with them as often as I can. Um, I read a lot, um, mostly fiction, what I what I like to call trash fiction, uh, because it's exciting to not have to think about um, my job where I do a lot of reading. Uh, and when I say trash, I mean, it, they're not necessarily trashy books, but it's I don't read like high literature or anything like that. Uh, I read, you know, about vampires and zombies and werewolves. And I love things that are fantastical uh, because it, it helps me think differently and think about other things. I just uh, finished uh, the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, um, which was fantastic. So that that kind of stuff. Um, I love watching TV. Uh, I love shows like everything from Top Chef to The Walking Dead to Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Um, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Actually, that's not true. That's a lie. I used to listen to a lot of podcasts when I left my house. Now that I don't leave my house, I only listen to podcasts usually when I'm traveling, which is not very often. But my favorites are probably uh, Why Is This Happening with Chris Hayes and Code Switch uh, on NPR. Uh, those are probably my two go-to or Serial when they have a new one on NPR. So yeah, really nerdy things. I'm not really that excited. That's awesome. Well, I, and this is totally a self-serving question because I also love podcasts. And so it's like, oh, add to my list. So I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Sure. Um, how about a little bit about, you know, kind of how you got into the role that you're in now? How did you sort of find your way into and through higher education? Sure. So you know, I think a lot of people believe that there's some traditional path that people take uh, to student affairs, and that path is usually untraditionally traditional, right? So I hear a lot of students say, I didn't even know that you could do this, and, and they assume that everyone else has that kind of experience. Well, I was a first-generation college student. I went to a small private liberal arts college, Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. A little shout out to Dickinson. Um, and... Uh, the first person that I dated in college was two years older than me and uh, was going into student affairs and was looking at programs in higher ed and student affairs. And so as a first generation college student, I actually knew that you could be a student affairs professional before I really understood what college was about. 
Uh, and that was pretty exciting for me because uh, it helped me really figure out what my path was. Uh, because I really liked college. It was the first time I felt like I could be my whole self. It was the first time I could um, be around other people who thought really interesting things and talked about them. And some of that's probably the friends that I made, right? So as a in the mid nineties being uh, queer and uh, at the time a woman um, was, you know, not really a thing uh, still. Um, we were, there were very few of us who were out on campus and because it's a small private college, right? There, were, there wasn't a lot of diversity in general. And so some of that kind of marginalization really connected me to other marginalized identities. So learning from folks who grew up working poor, um, working, lear learning from folks who were people of color, um, not realizing I grew up in a place that had a lot of Jewish folks and being someplace where being Jewish was odd. Uh, all of those things kind of connected me to communities and the kinds of work that I wanted to do in higher education. And so from college, I went right into a master's program and then uh, my assistantship was in fraternity and sorority life. Uh, from there, I took a position in residential life uh, for two years, then went back and started my doc program where I had an assistantship in residence life. Um, finished my coursework, um, was teaching at the same time where when I had two assistantships, one in residence life and one teaching a class because uh, you could do that at that time. And uh, after I finished my data collection um, or as I was finishing my data collection, I was applying for full-time jobs because bills are real and I had bills to pay. And so that's when I became the director of an LGBT resource center. I did that for five years while I finished my, my doctorate and then uh, I graduated with my doctorate in 2014, so it took me uh, about 10 years to finish my, my doctorate from start to finish. During that time, I also transitioned from being a woman to being a transmasculine man, and that um, probably delayed some of my <laughs> time to degree, uh, but I knew when I finished, I wanted to um, teach. I wanted to be a faculty member, and so I was teaching while I was at Syracuse, um, and was lucky enough to get the position at Western Illinois University as an assistant professor in their college student personnel program. Uh, and I did that for four years before I accepted the position at Virginia Tech, which this will be the start of my third year. So pretty long career, but hopefully I said it fast enough so that folks didn't get bored. Uh, you know, I realized it's been over 20 years. And so, you know, that's a lot of ground to cover in a few moments. No, that's great. I, I actually have a follow-up question for you. Um, part of it, I've, I've done some research on this and part of it because I think depending on who's listening, they could be very interested. So you talked about knowing that you really wanted to teach. What went into that? Like, was there a, a moment where you were teaching this class and the skies opened up and you're like, this is what I've been called to do? Or was it more subtle than that kind of how, how did you know this was where you wanted to be? So part of it was I went into a PhD, well, an EDD program, the social justice education uh, program at UMass Amherst um, with the idea that I wanted to be a faculty member. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's why I was pursuing the, my doctorate. Um, and I had an incredible mentor, uh, my, my advisor, my dissertation advisor, Maureen Adams, um, who 
knew a lot about pedagogy. And, you know, here is this, this um, brilliant woman who helped found this, this program um, who was trained in English literature. Um, and she knew how to create uh, curriculum and pedagogy in a way that was thoughtful and uh, amazing. And so teaching, so the class that I taught as a, as a doc student, we, had, we each had our own section of the class, but we met as a group once a week to talk about it. And we all had similar, we had, sim, we had order, the order that we taught things and the components of the classes had to be the same because it was a general education class, but how we did that was up to the individual instructor. And so I had all of this opportunity to learn from other people who were teaching. Um, and you know, I fell in love with the classroom long before I fell in love with research. Um, even though that's what you're doing in a doctoral program, right? And so my goal had always been to get to be able to do that full time. Mm -hmm. So there was no moment of epiphany. Um, I think what there was was a love of learning for me, uh, a love of the classroom space and taking classes in the social justice education program, you know, with, with folks like Barbara Love, with Bailey Jackson and Pat Griffin Jimeno Zuniga, uh, just really understanding the different dynamics of what that means. And, and those are components I use in facilitation, but they're also components connected to this idea of pedagogy, right? Reading and grappling with Freire, reading and grappling with bell hooks, um, that love of the, of the engaged pedagogy really started um, when I started the program and has sustained me throughout. And so I knew yeah, I'll say it this way. I knew I didn't want to be an administrator my whole life. Um, I did not want my days driven by my inbox, which is what it was like to be a director. And uh, that it's just a really tough way to live. And some people are wonderful at it and, and they thrive on it. And I realized it was crushing my soul <laughs> to do it that way. Um, and so, yeah, that was... I think that moment when I realized this is what I want to do probably started with my program and really came through when I had that moment where I probably had to make a decision between, and it's probably not this clean of a binary, but a decision between moving up in student affairs or higher education into an associate vice president, assistant vice president, or potentially dean of student position or faculty. Um, and I realized I did not want to live the life that the folks who did those jobs did. Um, not because it's a bad life, but I knew it wasn't the life that I wanted. Um, and to borrow the idea from that I got from uh, George McClellan, like there are questions I wanted answers to that I couldn't pursue while I was a full-time professional uh, in an administrative position that I could only pursue as a faculty member. That's great. and And... I wrote down and will cite you on this, but I did not want my days driven by my inbox. That is an excellent quote. So um, you, you touched on this a little bit, but you know, we talk all the time about how student affairs and higher education is a small world and mm -hmm. everybody knows everybody or almost everybody knows almost everybody. Mm -hmm. Who, and again, you've mentioned some people, if, if you want to go back to them, that's fine. But who are some people who've really been 
instrumental in you sort of navigating whether it was student affairs or student affairs leading into faculty. Um, because again, I think people listening will be like, oh, okay, I know that person too. And just to sort of, you know, mm -hmm. bring us closer together. So who, who are some people who come to mind for you? So you're right. It is a very, it is a very small field and, you know, you, you meet people and almost like pick up friends throughout conferences or positions that I've had. And I've worked with many wonderful people who um, I am grateful for. Um, you know, the first folks that come to mind besides my faculty from my, from my doctoral program uh, would be you know, Susan Marine, who's at, at Merrimack, um, who was a longtime student affairs administrator, um, she invited me in to work on a, a chapter uh, for a book on trans students. Uh, the chapter was about trans students. Um, and she didn't have to do that. She was, she was literally at that time transitioning to be a faculty member from student affairs um, and gave me that kind of encouragement to, to write. Um, Dan Tillipaw, who's a California Lutheran, uh, Kalu, uh, invited me in to do a research project with him while I was an administrator. Um, and that was incredibly generous and kind. Um, Don Johnson, who's faculty in the higher ed program at Syracuse, was my, my mentor in helping me figure out how to apply for faculty jobs, too. Mm. Um, she also is someone who, these are all folks who have extensive student affairs experience and became faculty members, right? Um, so th those are the, the folks whose work, you know, I really valued. Um, and yeah, a lot, of, a lot of queer and trans kin, you know, I mean, uh, Rachel Wagner at Clemson, she's my person. I've known Rachel since we were in, a doc, in the doc program together, um, both working in student affairs. Um, each taking turns, um, switching from student affairs to faculty life um, and trying to navigate that world together. Um, TJ Jurian is a, a, a co-creator, co-conspirator of mine who I adore. Um, and of course, you know, Z Nicolazzo, who I recall when Z was applying to Miami for her PhD um, and, and those moments and watching her blow right past me. Uh, finish her PhD while I was still finishing mine, um, publish a book while I was still trying to figure out how to get journal articles out of my dissertation, right? Um, but just uh, brilliant uh, individuals. And so those are, you know, like those are folks who have influenced really my faculty um, experience and, you know, too many people to mention in student affairs that I have been, had the pleasure to learn from and learn with uh, throughout my time. But it's, it's a pretty small field. And, you know, I think I probably have lived in, I've lived in New England, I'd call broadly the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic and the Midwest and spent some time in California in the West. Um, and so, and then the South, um, right? And so I feel like I have a pretty vast network of people across the United States and people keep moving constantly, which then just broadens the networks of possibilities. No, oh, that's great. I when I originally started asking that question, I used to say a person and everyone mm -hmm. who answers says, well, I couldn't talk about just one. So I'm trying to um, change sure. the, the way I ask that, but that's great. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. I saw that you put one or two people and I thought yeah. I'll try, but no, that's not really. Good. Yeah. I need to change yeah. this completely. <laughs> Everybody who. <laughs> um, 
Well, let's let's talk a little bit about, um, and you've done a great job setting the stage for how you got into your role as a faculty member. When it comes to, and I, I like that this is the first question um, from this set of questions for you in particular, because it sounds like teaching is a big part of what drew you to this work that you do. So how would you describe your teaching philosophy and, and how that shows up in your pedagogy? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this question since I saw it. And, you know, I have that flowery uh, statement, I'm sure, that I, I had to send when I applied for faculty positions. Um, but it probably comes down to, you know, it's a, my teaching is has roots in, you know, social justice education, obviously, um, from, from my academic training, um, practice, the idea of critical self-awareness, um, and engage pedagogy, right? So for me, I approach each class as uh, both the class when I think about planning a syllabus, but as well as the class in each class session as what is it that I want students to be learning? What are ways that they can engage in learning with me, right? Mm -hmm. Teaching graduate students um, is a privilege of being able to think with people instead of think for them. Um, and and Don Johnson was the one that really spoke that the first time, and it really it really landed on me. And so, what can I do to create a space, a place, and materials that allow folks to think with each other, um, and break them out of their past of banking education, uh, the Freire notion of banking education that that assumes that the learner doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. um, I want to cultivate students' curiosity. Um, and there's a level of accountability, right? Um, I am uninterested, <laughs> you know, teaching, I think people associate it with grading. Um, I really, yeah, I'm okay with saying this like publicly. The grades are completely unimportant to me. The feedback is more important. And so, you know, if you keep making the same errors or, or, or you aren't reading the feedback that I'm giving you, that's certainly going to frustrate me. And it's your learning and your education, right? Your graduate students. And so I expect them to have a level of engagement um, with their own materials and what they're submitting and uh, with what they bring to class discussions. Uh, I definitely have students that wish that I probably lectured uh, and I don't. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that, and I've learned that students learn more when they teach themselves and they teach each other, which doesn't mean that I sit back and make them try and figure it out, but it does mean we have to be partners in it instead of um, you just looking to me for the answer. Um, you know, and I embrace dialogue and conflict and all of those things are a part of my, my teaching philosophy of, you know, we can be uh, uncomfortable and that is not a hindrance to learning. It's hopefully maybe a springboard to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always interesting to me on a teaching evaluation when a student says, I wish you would lecture more. Mm -hmm. I never, ever wish that in any class. And I, I had people I like to listen to, but um, it is, it's different. And especially mm -hmm. for master's students, they're mm -hmm. learning what graduate, graduate education feels like. Mm -hmm as well as what the content is. That's yeah, great. and I'm actually the complete, right? So the way I teach 
you know, I think people teach, usually they say the way that they like to be taught. And I actually really prefer that people lecture it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love to go to conference sessions where people talk the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then I get to ask some questions because I want to sit and let the ideas marinate and puzzle them out and think through them. And then I might have some questions. Mm-hmm. But I do not like going to sessions where I have to engage with, you know, activities. <laughs> I find that to be incredibly hard to do. Um which maybe is from too many years in student affairs and having to facilitate engagement activities. Uh, so I actually, I teach through activities and engagement and small group and large group discussions and what have you and do very little talking. I probably do more talking than I realized. However, no formal lectures. And that is in no way, all of that is contrary to how I prefer to learn, which is to have someone talk at me. <laughs> so those sessions that start with, in this highly interactive session, you just oh, skip and go to them. I don't even go to them when they, I see them in the description in a conference. And I love that there are people who really need that. But what I really, and I certainly don't want someone to stand up there and read at me. Yes. But I do, there are people who, like lecture it can be dynamic mm-hmm. and it can be provocative. Mm-hmm. And I want to watch someone take me through their thinking so that I can really immerse myself with that and then think about engaging. I don't want you to keep interrupting me and my thinking. I mean, I certainly don't want to have to share things when I'm not ready to share. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely am that person that will leave a session when they're like, okay, and now we're going to do this activity. I'm like, okay, I'm going to sneak out the back. With no offense to the facilitators, it's my own preference, not, not their facilitation. For sure. So let's shift gears from teacher learner to, I guess it's a, another form of learning, mm-hmm. right? So the, the research area, would you talk a little bit about what are your areas of scholarship and kind of what, what gives you energy around that part of the work? So the broad description would probably be social justice, education, with a focus on queer and transness, queerness and transness broadly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, as I said earlier, I, I had some questions that I wanted to know answers to, and that's really what fuels my my research agenda. Um, and so, you know, the research I did with Dan Tillapaw was about LGBT resource centers that. Uh, where graduate students are the sole staff member. Um, because we had had a conversation where I thought that just feels incredibly exploitative, incredibly problematic, and an institutional gesture at inclusion without actually investing resources into it. Um, and it feels like a, you know, a little too much to ask of a graduate assistant. I don't care how professional and developed and thoughtful they are. 20 hours a week to do a job that took me 70 hours a week to do just doesn't seem like a good exchange. Um, so let's explore that, right? Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's where, that's where my research inspiration comes from, thinking about institutional dynamics, thinking about what that looks like for queer and trans students, what that looks like in, at different institutional types. And then, you know, currently I'm working on um, I have a large, large data set of 87 interviews of folks who facilitate uh, what 
broadly would be called uh, safe zone training. Mm -hmm. Because I'm curious about what is the impact, not the impact of the training itself, which is a really excellent question, but I have no idea how we answer that question. Mm -hmm. um, but the what is the impact of facilitating on the people who facilitate mm -hmm. diversity intervention education sessions, right? Specifically on LGBTQ students. Um, and then things that I teach about, right? So I'm working on a research project on the scholarship of teaching and learning for the history of higher education uh, classes. And so we've been, I've been working with Kelly Shrum, who's at George Mason University, and we have a, a project on um, using the same design for an, for a, an assignment where the students create uh, websites on a historical event and link that to contemporary culture, as well as create an asynchronous learning activity. Uh, as well as we've done interviews with folks who teach uh, their campus version of history of higher ed or higher education in the United States and learning about what people are teaching, what books they're using, the approaches they're taking, um, how many of us are not historians, right? So what works well for that project is that um, Kelly is a trained historian. She, that's what she has her PhD in and I have zero um, historical training. And so, you know, just the whole project has been really exciting. And to think about how I could be a better teacher, how I can be a better faculty member, how can I help students understand this class that's usually a core component in a higher ed and, and student affairs uh, curriculum that doesn't always, I think, connect with practice. Um, and, and, you know, that's a challenge. And so I'm excited to kind of dig into that too. Well, it, there's something really beautiful about that since the teaching is what drew you to the profession and then just finding a place where that merges with your research. That's awesome. So sure. Yeah. And it, you know, I, I had never taught history before I got to Virginia tech. And so, you know, here I was that first semester learning with my students, you know, um, <laughs> I was a terrible, terrible master student. Like, I don't know that I really paid attention to anything I learned in those classes. I wanted to get my degree and I wanted to go get a job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is my, opportunity to be the faculty member that maybe would have interrupted my thinking mm -hmm. and give a little more attention to grounding why the courses matter, why we don't just make students go through a master's program to get some credential, but instead engage them in critical thinking, engage them in learning, right? Um, you know, I guess it kind of goes back to, you know, my philosophy of if you want to work in student affairs and higher ed, you can get a job. I don't know that you actually need a master's degree to do that. I think you get a lot out of a master's program if you, if you do it, but I don't think it's, I think it's helpful um, and certainly helps people build capacity and skill building, but that's not enough, I think, to warrant a master's degree. Um, my take has always been my job in the classroom for a higher ed and student affairs program is to get you to think about or be prepared to puzzle through for questions that we haven't asked yet, for dynamics at institutions that we haven't anticipated, to not get stuck in doing things the way they've always been, but to bring fresh eyes to old problems um, and that's the point, I think, of a graduate education in higher ed and student affairs is to 
be ready and excited about those challenges instead of treating it like a hoop you have to jump through in order to get an entry level student affairs position. Yeah. Well, I love how you talk about wanting to be a better teacher because you weren't that great of a student. Um, I tell people, I was, I was a really good hall director because I was not a very good RA. So I knew what to look for and I knew, you know, how to find ways to support people. And like you said, interrupt sort of the patterns that we fall into. Um, when you think about your, well, it's not just scholarship, right? So it could be service opportunities or other things. How do you choose what to say yes to? Because we, we know that time is a limited resource, but, sure. um, you know, do you have strategies? Do you have sort mm -hmm. of a, first it's got to meet these four criteria, and then I'll look at what else is in it. So. No, I'm terrible. <laughs> I have yet to learn how to say no. Okay. Um, I, I've gotten better at saying no, um, but I still said yes. I said yes to something last week that I literally had told my accountability group I was not going to do anymore, which I said yes to a book chapter, right? So uh, faculty life, right? They're very clear on the things that you need in order to get tenure. Mm -hmm. And uh, Virginia Tech is a research one institution, which means that research and scholarship is the priority. Teaching would come second and service comes mm -hmm. last. And uh, I say all of this to say, um, I am a softie and I say yes to things because of the person that asked, because of how they asked, sometimes because it's interesting to me and I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Uh, sometimes out of compassion, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, out of necessity. I think we make it seem like you could say no to some things. And I'm not quite sure that you can when you have to do a particular kind of service. Like there's a certain level of service I have to um demonstrate in order to, to to earn tenure at Virginia Tech and so I have to say yes to some of the service things even though all of the faculty advice for pre-tenure faculty is to say no to service as often as possible right um I had my my second year review and I was told please stop you know it's great that you write so many book chapters but we really like we want more peer-reviewed journal articles what did I say yes to last week I said yes to a book chapter mm -hmm. um you know, I'm terrible. I'm terrible at it. Uh, so I'm not even going to pretend on your podcast that I have my stuff all together. I'm, I have a to-do list of research projects that um, sometimes makes me a little overwhelmed. And um, so anyone who's listening and wants to partner with me on a project, please don't ask me because I am terrible at saying no. Um, <laughs> And sometimes I think I can modulate my time and, and say, yes, let, but can we start working on that? And I'll give what I think is a far away date. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll say, yes, let's work on that in spring 2022. I am a fool. Don't listen to me. Just don't listen to me, folks. I'm just, I'm a work in progress when it comes to the, all of that. I'm greedy for projects, really, for research projects, for writing projects. Um, not because I want my name out there, but because I love mm -hmm. writing with people. I love the topics that I get to write about. And um, people have really interesting research questions that I'm 
I'm like, yes, let's dive into that data. Yes, let's work on that. Um, yeah. So additionally on your plate of, of stuff to do, like what are some other things that you're involved with, whether it's certainly institutional service, but professional organizations, what, what other things do you give your time to? I do a lot of reviewing for different journals. Um, some of the usual, I think, higher ed suspects, I'm on the editorial board for the Journal for Diversity in Higher Education. Um, but sometimes other journals will reach out. You know, there, there are many more queer and trans scholars in the United States than there ever probably was at a time before. Um, and that doesn't mean that there's so many of us that um, I don't get reached out to by journals that are outside of necessarily my academic discipline, like psychology or uh, things like that. Or I'm on the editorial board for the Journal of Men's Studies. Um, so I do, I do some of that work. Um, I was appointed to the, the Ash Book Award Committee. So that's a, that's a three-year commitment. I was an emerging scholar uh, for ACPA, uh, class of 2018. And so being involved with the, the folks uh, in the Emerging Scholars Program. Um, at, at Virginia Tech, I'm on a bunch of different committees, probably more than I should be on, uh, including search committees and uh, the diversity committee for the School of Education. Uh, so yeah, and then I, I also do some consulting and, and work like that where I do trainings or uh, I'm building a training for uh, an institution right now. Um, so yeah, I do, I do some stuff. I do a few other things outside of my day-to-day. -day. I did a, a guest lecture for a, a cancer research institution on sex, gender, and sexuality. And right, so again, things I should say no to, but I say yes to, um, not because, I say yes to because it's interesting to me. I, I tend to probably not give enough thought to in the neoliberal logics of tenure, what that looks like on my CV or my faculty activity report. Um, yeah, because I'd rather just do work that I love instead of what I'm quote unquote supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it sounds like a lot of the things you're involved with really does intersect with your um, areas of interest in terms of scholarship. So there's some overlap. Usually, yeah. usually, I'm usually pretty good at making that work, but. Uh, yeah. Okay. What about, do you have any like current projects or initiatives that you're working on that you would like to highlight? Sure, so the, the Safe Zone research has been really exciting of a, a round table at the Association for the Study of Higher Education um, that I'm doing on, on one of the manuscripts that I'm working on, which is gonna talk about the benefits and challenges of facilitating those training for all 80, using all 87 participants. And then um, I have another paper with Cy Sims, who's a doc student at the University of Arizona. Um, we're doing a paper on kind of what are the, what are the components of, of these trainings. Um, so the research really covers everything from 
the design itself, folks sharing their design um, to their experience with facilitation and how they would describe facilitation to conceptualizations about safe zones, um, safety, allyship. Um, so these are the first two kind of manuscripts that are coming out of out of that, and I'm pretty excited about it. The, the piece with um, with Sai uh, is really um, is really probably multiple papers, and so as we work through the data, we're trying to figure out where we're going with it. And those are just looking at the folks who full time this is part of their job. Right, so of the 87 participants, not all of them is this a part of their job. They volunteer or do it just because um, in other ways. So I'm pretty excited about that research. Um, I'm pretty excited to work on the, really dig into the research about folks who teach the history of higher education and what that really tells us about um, our programs and the faculty who do it. Um, and learning from my part, learning from the participants that Kelly and I and uh, our graduate student Sophia, who's also um, on the project, um, what people are using to teach. It's always exciting to hear about new, new articles uh, or play, things that I've missed. Um, so yeah, so those are those are probably the two, the two biggest ones of the really long list of projects that I'm working on right now. The really long list of things you've said yes to. Yes, yes. Like, you know, in the next month, I have two book chapters that are due. I have, um, yeah, I have a few other things that kind of I need to hurry up with. But um, yeah, and I'm, I'm working on a chapter for um, an edited anthology um, on insider outsider paradox for um, queer and trans. Um, folks. Um, and so, you know, it's a little bit more of like scholarly personal narrative and, um, work, which is always exciting to do something a little more personal and vulnerable than um, some of the more academic-y stuff. When you think back to before you became a faculty member and now you're in the role, you've done it a couple different places. What are some mm -hmm. things that have surprised you that you didn't necessarily, good or bad, that you maybe didn't anticipate coming into this role? Well, I mean, the first would be reinforcement of what a really bad master student I was. Um, <laughs> really turnabout is fair play. Um, I can't even get mad at students for being the way I was. Mm -hmm. um, I can get frustrated and I'm sure I do. I know I do. Uh, I try not to let them see it, but uh, I get it. I get it. Um, and so that was, you know, a little bit of a surprise where I, I, I think I reached out to a few of my master's faculty and said, I'm really sorry. I was terrible. I was just... Wow, you know, and I, I think I did something similar when I was a doc student and started teaching my own section that summer after I sent some of my undergraduate faculty members uh, emails to say, I was, wow, I really was a pain in your ass and I am sorry. Um, I get it now. And you were so gracious and kind, um, you know, and, and I'm just glad I still have. Uh, relationships with some of my undergraduate faculty members um, that they didn't write me off. Um, so it reinforced that. I mean, that was a little bit of a surprise. Um, 
it surprised me how much pressure I feel to be a good teacher. So, you know, regardless of the weight of teaching evaluations, uh, I always anxiously await my teaching evaluations. Um, what students say really matters to me. Their experience in the classroom really matters. And it's not that when I was a full-time administrator and teaching one class a semester um, at Syracuse that um, I didn't care. Uh, there was a difference in that that was, I had a little bit di of distance from it and that it wasn't going to impact my my overall job performance. My associate vice president who I reported to did not look at my teaching evaluations and that was not factored in to my end of the year evaluation. Now we could have a whole conversation about why maybe that should have been different, but it, it wasn't. And then to know that, you know, that's my semesterly evaluation. It's great, you know, to have feedback from colleagues and peers and uh, in a variety of other ways that I interact with, with folks on research projects and what it means to co-author with me, all that stuff. But this is really the only formal evaluation process that happens. Um, and it really matters to me. And I guess it probably, you know, I definitely hear people say, well, it really, you know, it's just one or two comments. Those one or two comments, I still can't let go. I get lingers. <laughs> um, that's, that's definitely been a surprise. And then the last one I would say is, it takes a lot more work. And I don't know if this is true for you too, since you have, you have pretty lengthy student affairs experience prior to faculty life. It's a lot more work to translate full-time student affairs experience into a curriculum um, and to connect practice to content. Um, I think because so much of the ways that these courses the structure of these courses do seem disparate from the active practice. Um, and I think maybe that, that leads to students being really bad graduate students. Um, but, you know, we both teach law, right? And law is one of those classes where students either come in and think this is going to be like law school class and it's going to be all Socratic method and lectury and I'm going to have to do an exam that's closed book where I remember cases and years and what have you. Um, actually, that's probably the only perspective that I think a lot of students come into a law class for. And I haven't in no way, and thanks to talking to you a couple of years ago, I've been able to let go of that perception completely and teach a completely different kind of class um, that really focuses on their ethical development, that really focuses on risk management, that really focuses on the practical, you know, peace as well as stop saying like we need to stop teaching students that if they know how a court case was decided that in any way they could interpret or should interpret legal decisions that happen from here on forward right not only do we not speak legal scholar talk but legal counsel might have some opinions about you doing your own interpretation of be it title nine to you know, um, any liability issues that the institution has, right? Or signing a contract that you should, and, and 
I think it took a lot more rethinking in my head and reimagining how to take the experience of entry-level professionals aren't going to engage with legal counsel most of the time until like in their entire, like until they get much higher in their career and the institution because hierarchies are real. And if you are, it means something really, really bad happened mm-hmm. um, either to you or to a student or a decision that you made. And that's a whole different conversation. And those are more the exception than the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but this perception that if I do anything wrong, I'm going to get fired. We need to f- help students understand how to unpack that, to let go of that. Uh, because it takes a lot for somebody to get fired, even at a private institution and your perception of law and policy need to be adjusted. And so it's harder to translate that into what that looks like in building a curriculum for a semester in a law class than I think I thought it would be, mm-hmm. um, you know? And I, you know, and then you as someone who I know had significant conduct experience, right? I imagine that you, you're like, I'm teaching this class, but maybe it's completely divergent from how I experienced conduct and why are we doing it that way, right? Like it, it literally took you disrupting my thinking to say, why would we teach this class differently? Any diff- like, why would we teach this class so differently than what we actually want students to go into the field knowing? Right. And well, first of all, let me just say, anytime you want to come back and just do an episode on teaching law and ethics, I, I would do that. Like I would sure. do a 14 part series on that topic. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's such a weird transition because I still feel like a practitioner, but my students don't see me that way. That maybe the first fall I taught, maybe then, mm-hmm. but after that, nope, you know, you're a faculty member and it's not discrediting what I bring by any stretch. But if I didn't think, yeah, I may not know exactly what it's like right now before COVID, I sure do now. You know, I was in housing for a long time and you worked in housing. Mm -hmm. And I talk to people who are doing it and I'm like, I I can't even pretend. I cannot even pretend to know what it's like. And so, you know, in law and ethics, Title IX, dramatic changes, you know, in the past well, I think I'm starting year eight. So it's not what it was, you know, and right. so this idea of how do we think about things, mm-hmm. that's yeah. the best that we can teach because the answers that we give are either wrong to begin with or outdated within mm-hmm. two months of us saying, well, Here's how. And there's also your institution is different than mine. Mm -hmm. What are my relationships like? All of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in a class like law, right, I want them to get into, you know, I've noticed in the programs that I've taught, that I currently teach in and that I taught previously in, you know, students come in with a, what I would describe as a more social justice activist perspective, right? Which is beautiful and wonderful and important to cultivate. And they're planning to work in institutions that are based in 
hierarchy that subscribe to neoliberal logics of profitability that want to know why you would have a program if not enough people, what they deem as enough people to attend as cost per student to bring in that kind of speaker or have that event um, that look at dominant identities as the norm and think of any program that doesn't appeal to those as superfluous or cultural center work or um, adjacent at best to the purpose of the institution, mm -hmm. right? Um, that these, uh, our perceptions of how communities form on campus are still incredibly fraught and need more unpacking, right? That students tend to make friends with, and when we think about it, right? They tend to make friends with people who are in their academic major. And yet student affairs is organized around building community in residential experiences, in student organizations, in athletics, in all of these other things. Um, and we're not, we're not talking to each other, right? Like the academic student affairs divide is real. Um, and so these students are wonderful in coming in with this energy of wanting to do activism, of resisting, of unpacking, of doing their own self-awareness work. And in a class like law, the question is, okay, so then let's really dive deep into what do we mean by free speech? If microaggressions are harmed, which I agree, but is, is, is conflict abuse? Mm. Is the presence of uh, inflammatory speaker on campus, why, why do your ethics when you think all the way through or your values support or not support you banning that person from campus mm. or, banning, or, or discouraging a student organization from bringing that speaker to campus, right? Um, and really grappling with what does all of that mean and who you are and how you live your values. And, you know, the allyship training work that I'm doing right now really excavates some of those questions about what is allyship in action? What does accountability really look like? Um, and that's some of what I try and infuse into law. Um, and I think that we have to teach and provide opportunities for them to figure out for themselves their own strategies and tactics for resisting um, places that would cause their erasure, that would silence them, that would marginalize them, but also give them the ability to figure out how to persist. Is this the right field for them? Um, that no field is perfect, that institutions can't love you back. Mm -hmm. um, only people can love people, right? heard Rachel Wagner say, institutions can't love you back many times. And it's true. And yet we have deep love for these institutions, right? We have mascots, we have athletics, we have all the places, you know, the ways that they inspire us to try and give back, whether it's our time or our money. Um, so all of those complicated issues, um, how do you get people to wrestle with those in a law class where they're like, that's not what I signed up to take. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I know, but this is the class that I'd want to take. And so that's the class that we're going to have yeah. because I don't know how else to do this without having some hollow rote recitation of yeah. classes, yeah. you know, of cases, of outcomes, of what have you. When I'm not a legal scholar, right. I'm not going to pretend to be one. I'm not a historian and I'm not going to pretend to be one, mm -hmm. you know. I love case law. Like I find it so fascinating and I don't remember ever using it. 
ever. This is my point, yeah. right? That is my point. I mean, maybe once over the water cooler, maybe once because someone else somewhere said the name of a case and you, you thought, oh, I should, I should know what that is. Mm-hmm. But never in an interview. Interviews are not exam. No. No, in you the work to know the case. Right. In the work to know why you shouldn't drive someone or drink underage, right? Yeah. You don't need to know the case uh, that determined why you should not drink with underage staff members. Mm-hmm. You do not need you just need to know that there's some policy that you need to find out about what what the repercussions might be if you make that choice. Yeah. Choices and consequences. That that's all I can teach people. Yeah. Well, and to your point earlier, thinking about if these are the parameters of this profession or of this job at this institution, is it the right one for you? You know, you're never gonna find, unless you start your own institution, you're never gonna find one you totally agree with. What are you willing to compromise on? Um, And still feel like you're being true to yourself and who you are and the work that you aspire to do. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of with all of this in mind, what, Mm -hmm. If someone were to come to you and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Um, and again, it might be a student, it could be a current practitioner. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give? What um, suggestions would you have for how they might explore it or think about it? What, what thoughts do you have there? Well, if they already have a doctorate, I would say volunteer to teach. There's lots of programs that you could do it remotely or in your area where they'd be happy to have uh, an adjunct faculty member and engage uh, in like in a community of learners of, of faculty um, to understand what, what it's like to really test it out. Um, to know that if you go from being a high enough ranking uh, administrator, whether higher ed uh, administrator or student affairs administrator, uh, are you prepared for the salary cut that's going to happen? Because once you hit a certain level, usually director or over, depending on the size of your institution, you're going to take a fa- uh, salary cut when you, um, if you get a faculty job. Um, <laughs> that you should um, probably investigate more that faculty who seem like they don't really ever come to campus and that they're not really doing anything most of the time are probably super productive and doing other things that you just can't see. And be prepared to have that realization moment uh, where you have a new, I don't know, a new perspective on that. Um, For folks who don't have a doctorate, the advice I usually give them is find a topic that you love, look for faculty, and programs who can support and have interest in your research topic that's really helpful. Ask people about what they're like as advisors. And I think people doubt themselves in doc programs and worry about finishing. And I usually remind doc students um, or people who wanna go into the doc programs once you've been admitted, you've passed the last hurdle. Everything from there on out is persistence. Are you stubborn enough to finish, whether part-time or full-time? Because let me tell you, there's a lot of compromise and a lot of sacrifice. Working full-time and finishing writing my dissertation was, I don't even know that I remember a lot of those 
two years that it took. And I certainly only remember the reaction I had when my chair told me she wanted two more chapters um, when I thought I was done. Mm -hmm. And so are you stubborn enough? Because you're definitely smart enough. You're definitely bright enough. There might be some mechanics you need to learn. There might be some methodology stuff you need to learn. Um, maybe you need to learn more, more theory. Those are learning things you definitely have the capacity to do. But are you stubborn enough to finish to say, I've collected this data and I owe it to my participants to do something with it? Um, that's usually the advice I give people. If you're willing to do that and figure out how stubborn you are, then you could do this. I have no doubt that you could do that. Yeah, I love that you said that. I say the same thing. There comes a point where it's not about intelligence or ability. It is just about persisting and just being like, I'm going to finish. Um, and especially, I'm also first gen. And if you are someone who carries um, sometimes a less than celebratory self-narrative, I encourage you to listen to what Chase just said over and over, like bookmark this little clip and come back to it because those questions and that doubt, it pops up over and over again. And mm -hmm. knowing it's just about finishing is, mm -hmm. is really important. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, that's great. Is there anything else that you wanna talk about about your own work or experience or anything I should have asked you that I, I failed to bring into our conversation today? Not that I could think of, no. Thank you for asking though. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, I really, I had a feeling this was gonna be a pretty good conversation and um, I'm not even kidding about another episode about teaching law and ethics because it's, it is my favorite course to teach. I love it, um, but it's hard. It's really hard. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's harder to teach for me than it is for my students to be successful in. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of as we move to wrap up, what is something or what are some things that are, are inspiring hope for you right now? You know, it's a pretty precarious time right now. Yeah. I want to be hopeful about the fall, right? The start of a new semester or fresh syllabus is always exciting mm -hmm. and meeting new students. And I can't ignore the worries about the Delta variant, the lack of vaccinated people taking things seriously. I definitely have my own worries that fall 2021 is going to replicate spring 2020 where we start face to face and ignore things and end up having to shut down which is incredibly disruptive to so many people's lives and experiences so it's you know hope is a hard thing mm -hmm. um and right so and not but and we're still here we have students who are going to bring new energy into the classroom. We have new students who are coming to colleges and universities across the country who maybe didn't believe that they could get in or aren't sure what to expect. And our jobs are to be there and support them and remind them that you know we see them, we hear them, we wanna know them. Um, we expected them to come. 
And that newness, I think, is always exciting. The fall is always a hopeful time for me, even though things are getting ready to rest. I find the fall to be incredibly hopeful. Um, my partner is now uh, not working in residence life anymore, and I find it incredibly hopeful to think about an academic year where uh, my partner does not have to deal with uh, responses to whatever's happening with the pandemic. Um, and I'm reading uh, No Sh No Study Without Struggle by Lee Patel. Um, her book just came out and I'm finding that to provide, um, while incredible critique uh, about settler colonialism and higher education, incredibly helpful. Um, because we have to believe it's possible. We have to believe that liberation is possible. Otherwise, why are we doing what we do? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not here to just be a cog in the machine. And so, you know, let's figure out liberation together. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much uh, for being a guest today, Chase. I, I think there's a lot in this episode that will be useful to a lot of different people. Um, but selfishly, I just like talking to you. So uh, <laughs> this was fun. Um, so thank you once again. And today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA. We thank them for their support. Additionally, this show would not be possible without my producer, Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida. Jen, keep up the good work. Thank you for getting the episodes out to the audience. Um, as always, I appreciate your support and collaboration. And then as we close, I would like to leave with a quote. And the quote today is from Roxanne Gay. We are all fragile creatures, but only some of us are able to understand our fragilities as the strengths that they actually are. My name is M Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Please have a beautiful day. <laughs>